Welcome to the Reformed Confessional Podcast. My name is John Fry, and as always, Reformed Confessional exists to promote Reformed Confessionalism, proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture, and extol the supremacy of Christ over all things. Today, I will step outside of the normal lane and the path that we tread here at Reformed Confessional, and we're going to do a book review. And that book is around the topic of Fear of Man by Ed Welch, who is a staff member at CCEF, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. The title is When People Are Big and God is Small. This 239-page, 13-chapter book is a blessing, and I've read it twice. And I, I think there is a little bit of urgency for me to share the contents of the book with you. And before I get into the review proper, I want to share a little bit of background on why I have this level of urgency to get these audio waves in the ears of our listeners. First of all, I read this book for a second time back in October and was certainly blessed with it, and my heart is challenged by it. I think the subject, fear of man, is not necessarily a biblical category that I don't even want to have an arbitrary quantifying, but I would just say in my life that the Lord has blessed me to live and the churches I've been in and the people that I walk with in times past and present, I don't think that at large we've realized that the fear of man is a biblical category and that it is opposed and contrasted with trusting in the Lord. So the Bible presents on one hand, we either fear man or on the other hand, we trust the Lord. So I hope that this brings an awareness, one, that it's a biblical category and two, that maybe that's something your heart struggles with, as certainly I know that mine does. And that was initially why I thought this would be maybe a good opportunity to go outside of what we would normally do at Reformed Confessional and do a book review. But then I found out uh, two really tragic events happened approximately one week apart. A couple weeks ago, we were in Lord's Day worship, and someone in the church requested prayer for a family who had just lost their teenage daughter to suicide. You know, whenever you hear that, it's, for me, it's a bit of a, a gasp, kind of a sinking in the heart. You hate to hear it. To, to have a life taken through suicide is tragic, especially the life of someone who is a teenager, you know, just simply because we think, hey, you know, from our perspective, man, their life was ahead of them. They had, there, was, there was hope beyond those rough teen years, is maybe some of the things we would think. But overall, it's just a feeling of, of shock and sadness. And as I mentioned, there were two events. Uh, about seven to ten days later, a pastor friend of mine in North Carolina called, and he just said, John, I need to talk with you, a young 14-year-old girl, you know, and I, I would view 14 as, you know, a lady, a girl becoming a woman uh, has taken her own life. And, and she sat under my preaching and, and was in my congregation and my heart sank with him. And immediately we, we just discussed the sovereignty of God and his goodness uh, and the appropriateness of him in his pastoral role to weep with uh, those who would certainly be weeping, and just the comfort that the Holy Spirit gives us in affliction. And, and these are some things we meditated on immediately, but I, I combined this with two young women um, in their taking of their own lives with just having read When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. And I thought, you know, in part from what I've learned in biblical counseling certification and training and some of the courses I've been able to take, listening to other godly men and women who have counseled people with suicidal ideations and have been around families and, and people who have committed suicide, 
it's it's a very complex thing in one regard, but I am convinced that in part of it, and maybe not every person that has ever thought about suicide or uh, attempted it or even committed suicide, but I think the fear of man off, often plays into a person's thought process on why they would take their own life. And so today, my hope is to... We won't be exhaustive, although I could be, and that would be exciting. Uh, But my goal mainly is to encourage you that for you personally, if fear of man is something you struggle with, constantly looking at other people and fearing them in the areas that Ed Welch is going to bring out here in a moment. But if that is driving you to suicidal ideations, comparing yourself to others, having hopelessness because of what others think of you, I'm, I'm praying and hoping that this will go out to someone somewhere and remind you that you are made in the image of God, you are called, and for the believers out there, you are equipped with the, the power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have the Word, you have the church, you have the precious blood of the Savior who has washed you and cleansed you and regenerated you, and therefore there is hope for tomorrow. And to those who know somebody that may be struggling or or you know you work with somebody or somebody in your family or somebody at church or maybe you're in a ministry position and someone has confided to you and maybe a counseling setting or a discipleship setting maybe examine and and explore and bring out those deep waters of their heart that proverbs chapter 20 verse 5 talks about and see if fear of man is part of one of the root issues that would drive somebody to think that their best choice is to not exist on the earth uh, that the lord placed them on uh, to bring him glory. So with that, I want to go through this book here by Ed Welch, a nice little paperback in my hand I'm holding. I'd also let you know that my copy, I was blessed to find this P&R publishing product on the island of Guam at a Christian bookstore for a nice price of $2.99. It was a used copy, very lightly used, unfortunately, uh, but I was able to only spend three bucks on that. And then uh, prior to Prior to getting this, we recently moved. Prior to getting this book back, Nick had mailed me his from Pittsburgh. So I actually have two copies in my house right now. What I just wanted to relay, a couple basics. It's 13 chapters, 239 pages, so nothing too crazy overwhelming. And some of you will be familiar with the, the very first chapter's name. It'll, it'll ring a bell to you. So the first chapter is a little bit of a response to a book around this time. It's called Love Tanks with a Leak. So he starts out the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, about the fear of man. Uh, The subtitle is Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. Probably should have told you that five minutes ago. But uh, he starts off with love tanks with a leak. Now, you got to understand Ed Welch published this book in 1997 with PNR Publishing. And that was five years after uh, Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages came out. And in that book, he promulgated and propagated the concept of a love tank. And that concept is basically if you're in relationship with someone, particularly within this book, it's marriage, that the love tank needs to be full and it needs to be refilled. And it might have leaks in the bottom if you're having a visual out there. You have this nice tank of water whooshing around that's symbolic of love and it leaks out the bottom if there are things like disagreements and fights and ignoring one another maybe poor listening, just, you know, those those things that will happen when two people with opposing wills live under the same roof and your love tank leaks. 
And the way to replenish that would be to speak their love language to them. Things like gifts and quality time. And what Ed Welch is, and it seems like uh, back from 1997, so five years later, he's responding. And he's chapter one is all about Ed Welch, a little autobiography of how he walked around functionally like a leaky love tank. He seems like lived with that paradigm that uh, these, these negativities of life are like holes in the bottom of my tank and the leaky love is just falling out. And he looked to other people to fill that love tank so that he would have a sense of self-esteem, which is a category that we will, we will follow that theme a few times here talking about self-esteem. But really what Ed Welch challenges throughout this book is A, the, the concept of a love tank. And he doesn't necessarily do this head on as I've read some other people, but that the concept of this love tank where other people are who fulfill you uh, is, is not a biblical notion. And also the concept of self-esteem, having others esteem you or looking to them for your approval is also not a biblical a biblical concept or a characteristic of Christ followers. So he starts out with this leaky love tank, and I'm going to read uh, a little more than I, I really uh, would like to. Uh, I know that as a listener of, of people out here that do what I do, I know being read to isn't always the most exciting thing. So try to make it engaging. This is one page, but it's going to give you the, the thrust and the theme of this book. Okay, So it goes like this. This is page 13, and it's called A Great Awakening. He says, marriage has been a privilege and blessing to me. It has also been the context for a surprising discovery. I found that being okay in Christ was not quite enough for me. When I was first married, I knew that Jesus loved me, but I also wanted my new wife to be absolutely forever smitten with me. I needed love from her. I could finally handle small amounts of rejection from other people, but I felt paralyzed if I didn't have the love I needed from her. I needed unconditional love. If she didn't think I was a great husband, I would be crushed, and, as you might guess, a little angry. This led to a second awakening. I suddenly realized that I had mutated into a walking love tank, a person who was empty inside and looking for a person to fill me. My bride was, indeed, gifted in being able to love, but no one could have possibly filled me. I think I was a love tank with a leak. I tried the old biblical answers that had worked before my marriage, but they were of no use. They didn't go far enough. In fact, they became almost irrelevant. They reminded me of times when, after I'd been politely dumped by a girl, my parents would try to cheer me up with, we love you no matter what. I always appreciated their attempt, but as all parents and children know, it didn't help. Sure, it was nice that my parents loved me, and it would have been much worse if they did not love me, but I wanted somebody else to love me too. Since those days, I have spoken with hundreds of people who ended up at this same place. They're fairly sure that God loves them, but they also want or need love from other people. Or at least they need something from other people. As a result, they're in bondage, controlled by others and feeling empty. They are controlled by whoever or whatever they believe can give them what they think they need. Wow, and that and that really just I, I thought the context was appropriate to get us down to that last part that folks who are looking to other people to fill them and and that's the concept of the leak because it would always feel like if you submit yourself to thinking that way, you would always have a leak because what your perception is people are filling you up or we're looking to other people to fill us up and maybe we don't even realize we're doing that. But the reality is they're not. We we think, you know, if we had to use a metaphor, they're filling us up with water, but Really, the best they can offer is air. 
you know, it's not filling you up at all because what you're looking for, people aren't able to give you. And so you might say, I have a leak, or you might say, you might blame the people. But the reality is if we look in the mirror and we take a Matthew chapter seven approach and we ask the Lord to seek us and to show us, it might not be, the problem is probably not that other people, I mean, and that's not to excuse any conflict, but what Ed brings out here is that's we're expecting too much of other people. We're expecting God-like proportions from them to find safety, security, love, hope, and joy, and peace. And uh, I just want to say also, there's there's a lot of room in this book for people who want to pursue a great marriage. Like, praise God for that. We, that is a good thing. But also, it's not where our righteousness comes from. And there will be days where the marriage struggles. And there might be legitimate times where you've been sinned against by your spouse, But that doesn't mean that we have to fall and falter into despair because our hope ultimately is not in our spouse. So if you can relate, and what Ed says is if you can, that you may be in bondage controlled by others and feeling empty. And people who experience the fear of man tend to be controlled by what Ed says, quote, whoever or whatever they believe can give them what they think they need. Then it goes on for quite a while and he, he really builds in to two parts. So chapters 2 through 13 are two parts of this book. Chapter 1, the leaky love tank is the introduction. And then parts 1 and 2 couple together to have basically seven steps for identifying and overcoming fear of man. What I wanted to do is uh, read out those seven steps to you as we get to each part. But before we do that, like I had mentioned, we want to just follow this kind of topic and theme of self-esteem a little bit from page 15, just a couple pages from where we were at. I'll just read a brief paragraph. But he's kind of giving a diagnostic test to say, hey, do you you struggle with fear of man? And here's one of the things he says. uh, Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? This, at least in the United States, is the most popular way that the fear of other people is expressed. If self-esteem is a recurring theme for you, chances are that your life revolves around what others think. You reverence or fear their opinions. You need them to buttress your sense of well-being and identity. You need them to fill you up. That's just one area, and we'll come back to that and read another quote, and that's just trying to get a flavor out there that what Ed drives home throughout the book is that self-esteem, a seeming self, is not characteristic of God's people, but it is certainly characteristic of the culture and probably has been for the past 75 years or so. As we progress uh, with a little more pace than than what I've camped out on here just to give you a flavor of fear of man and what Ed's going for. Part one of this book uh, really extends into chapters, I think it's two through five, and as I flip through, if that's wrong, I'll correct myself, but the three steps in part one are step one, recognize that the fear of man is a major theme both in the Bible and in your own life. And he opens up part two with a scripture quotation from Proverbs chapter 29, Verse 25, and I really appreciate this, Maxim, because it's not, it's not overly difficult, and it's, it's some, some of the Proverbs, you got to dig a little deeper to understand what it's saying. This one is, I think, uh, face value, we understand this. It says, quote, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, and so we see there that That is a biblical category, fear of man, an explicit reference that we can look at. And fear of man will prove, it will lead to, it will only bring about a snare, a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So there we see fear of man and trust in the Lord 
are contrasted or juxtaposed to one another here. And we see that whoever trusts in the Lord is safe, but the fear of man puts you in a snare, which I think there is a, um, a sense of a lack of safety when we're fearing man. We're always looking, you know, or thinking of what do other people, uh, what do other people uh, thinking of me or what will they think of me? And sometimes our actions are motivated with that in mind, and sometimes it's just kind of subconscious. You know, we're condi- we've conditioned ourselves a little bit for that. Where he really digs in and develops this uh, fear of man theme is in three areas, and this is on page 23 of the book. He says, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. People do have the ability to do that. Number two, we fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. And number three, we fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. Really, what what he's getting through here by quoting that scripture and putting these things here is that when we we kind of put up these walls around our life, whether it be, and, and this is just John speaking, whether it be our job, the amount of money we make, uh, our homes, our material possessions, I guess would be a better general topic, but it, it could even be the clothes we wear, the makeup we put on, the way we fix our hair, the certain words we use, and and, and I would even just say something as basic as this, and this is one way that I have found it's just so basic and rooted into everyday life. Have you ever forgot to put deodorant on? And, you know, um, what do we do? What is the concept of deodorant? We're trying to prevent people from, from smelling what we really smell like. You know, well, what would they think if I didn't have deodorant on? Uh, they'd think that I, I stink and I never take a bath and I'm dirty. And then they'd tell other people and that would be humiliating. So there's a deodorant industry, and it, <laughs> you know uh, I don't know of any health benefits with of deodorant. Uh, I really don't. Uh, I once had a friend tell me that there was aluminum in in some of it, and that's not good for you, and don't use it. But really, that's just one example. You know, we're trying to mask reality to make people think that something that might be true about us, i.e., we stink, is not true because we're afraid of what they would think of us. How dare they smell uh, the sweat of my labor? <laughs> Uh, but that that's just one way that this applies and works its way out. So the the thrust of chapter two is, you know, people will see me. And there's some funny examples. Have you ever thought, have you ever been driving in your car and you're just jamming out to your favorite tune and <laughs> and then you look over and someone someone's staring at you? I mean, I can I can almost feel the blood rushing to my face and my cheeks blushing right now. And it's possible that those people don't even know you and you'll never see them again, but you have embarrassment there, you know, because people will see me. And there are other, there's other examples of that, you know, as, as we raise children, we're trying to teach them these, uh, these funny things, you know, where do, where do the contents of your nose go and how do we get them out of there? You know, one, we we don't want germs, we don't want to spread of germs, but also there's a, there's a part of the things that we teach our children because we don't want people to think they're weirdos. And that has underpinnings of fear of man. Uh, we want, we don't, and we as parents don't want people to think our kids are weirdos. So uh, it, people will see me is a big theme. And I'll move on here a little bit to chapter three. Uh, it's titled, people will, uh, excuse me, it's titled that people will reject me. And that's something that man really resonates with me as a young man i was very involved in athletics and the concept of like making teams and uh, you know trying out and making the team and then in the sport of wrestling which is uh you know certainly one of the most challenging things i've ever did in my life 
there is a a concept that uh, meritocracy, basically, you know, and that's that's kind of the world we live in. We have to earn what we get, and that's how wrestling was. You know, if you want to get on that podium, you know, it's it's you make the weight, you you know, you have the maneuvers, the tenacity, you show up on game day, you outwork your opponent, and if you didn't, you only have you to look in the mirror. You know, it's it's you and the opponent, and no one else. And you know, it was man, I devoted a lot of time and, and I loved that sport. And I, I still, I, I would say I still really like it and still like to watch it and respect those who engage in it. But then the concept of, of grace rocked my world. And I remember I had a period of my walk with the Lord where grace was anew and fresh to me. And I cried every time we would mention grace at church or sing a song. I remember just crying because my life around sports was so merit-based. And even in industry and business and the places we work, you know, and, and in the military, it's, it's meritocracy. It's you are rewarded according to your works. Salvation is not that way. Uh, and, and really when we see that, um, what Ed Welch really gets through is people rejecting me. When we look at the Lord, who looks at his people on the basis of Christ's work, we are accepted. And there's a quote I read recently, and I really wish I could, um, man, I wish I could give the author credit. And it's, it's some counseling book, but I think it said, uh, I know that it said, I can't remember who it was by, but I think it was a counseling book. It said that you know, there's a saying that's gone on, you know, that God accepts you the way you are, but that's not true. God accepts you the way Christ is, that is the essence of imputed righteousness. So we have this fear that people reject us, and there's validity because people do reject us. We have to work for everything that we're given. Uh, maybe everything is hyperbole, but that's how you know the money, the paycheck that we get, uh, the promotion that we get, the rank that we earn, fill in the blank, and that is what that's we're conditioned for. That. That's how the rest of life is. So we try to posture ourselves. And whether it's being rejected from a social circle, a group of people. And again, I want to tie back to this really segues in with suicide. People have been rejected. Not only do they, where does that fear come from? Experience. They've been rejected from people. And so they may protect themselves or posture themselves from other people to prevent that rejection. And that segues nicely with chapter four that says people will physically hurt me. And this is where I want to be really just express my compassion. There have been people we can look in God's word who have suffered significant affliction and wrongdoing. They have been sinned against grievously. And some of these experiences from chapter three and four of rejection and being physically hurt, they kind of tie together in the sense that they actually happen to people. And so that conditions us to fear it happening again, fearing that rejection or feeling that physical hurt again. And so Ed launches into step two, which says, identify where your fear of man has been intensified by people in your past. And this is helpful to understand where patterns started developing in our life. And I would say that's what really sets biblical counseling and biblical preaching and teaching aside from secular therapy and psychology is that we, as God's people, we look at how the Bible would maybe help us to look back at our past and understand some things, but we also look at the hope of God's Word and His transforming, sanctifying power, and we know that our past may have formed some habits in us 
and may have influenced some behaviors, but they do not determine who we will be for the rest of our life. And another thing that I would say in the midst of affliction of being rejected and being hurt, God works his purposes through that. Psalm chapter 119, verse 67, it says, Before I knew affliction, I went astray, but now I obey your word. God uses those things to bring us closer to him, to learn about him, to teach us about his word, and sometimes to draw us to trusting in him, as Proverbs 29, 25 said. So, Ed goes on with something called the trail of the fear of man, and I won't camp too too much on that, but I would definitely just say to anyone who really has been physically hurt and you've postured your life to protect yourself from being rejected or hurt again, sometimes that comes in the form of isolation. You just don't want to be around people. You don't talk to people. Or other times it might be people-pleasing. You know, we want to make sure that we make others happy so that they don't hurt us or reject us. And and that would be some of what Ed is getting at. So I'll move on. Uh, in chapter 5, it basically says the world, the, the chapter, I'll move on in chapter 5, where we see step 3. Chapter 5 is titled, The World Wants Me to Fear People. Step 3 says, Identify where your fear of man has been intensified by the assumptions of the world. And I won't spend too much time on this, because really an entire hour could be spent on talking about uh, the three areas that Ed gets at, at the assumptions that the way the world has worked to influence us. I'll just list them here. He says the way our fear of man is intensified. So we've had legitimate hurts. We've been uh, rejected. Maybe we've been physically hurt. Those are legitimate hurts. But then there are there is a tendency of those experiences to cause the fear of man to root deep in our hearts. But then the world intensifies that. It's like they put a bold font over that which was in our heart by saying three things. One is we are morally good. Two is emotions are the way to truth. And three is that all people are spiritual. And that's where really you could spend a lot of time on because all people have a spirit, but he really works out the way the world views spirituality versus the way that God calls us to view it and live it out. So uh, then, then he does get into a critique of psychology, which I really respect Ed Welch from because he has, I, I think, his uh, PhD from the University of Utah in like neuropsychology. But this is a biblical counselor. He is committed to a dichotomous view that yes, there are real things that happen in our body, but also we have a spirit. We have an inner man, and the inner man and outer man interact. And a lot of things that the world would want to call an outer man issue, sometimes they aren't. Oftentimes, they're an inner man issue, but also we have outer man issues that might have roots that relate to the inner man. And I really respect Ed Welch uh, because he is kind of a, um, a, a in a unique way. He has a an, an education level that you know some would you know some would say secular. It's from a secular university, but he views that profession, he views that education through the lens of Scripture and never forsakes the teaching of the Word of God. So when he critiques psychology, I tend to listen. So uh, I know I've rambled, and I really hope maybe uh, something in here has helped you. But as we turn to the second half of the book, just a quick summary, he opened up with the leaky love tank, you know, looking for other people to do for us what only God can. And some of the things that have conditioned us or planted fear of man in us is, you know, the fear that other people will see me, the fear of being rejected, and the fear of 
being physically hurt. And then the world, you know, really intensifies that and almost makes it seem normal and normalizes that. And I would say a testimony to normalizing that is that a lot of us walk around fear, man, we don't even realize it. We're trying to please people to protect ourselves and we've done it for decades and haven't even realized it because, well, that's the way our world functions. So part two is titled Overcoming Fear of Others. And there are four steps here that we'll read as we get to each one. But it opens up in chapter six saying, Know the fear of the Lord. So I'm going to read you the titles of the next few chapters. Chapter six, Know the Fear of the Lord. And really there, he just builds a grandeur of the attributes of God so we can see this marvelous, wonderful God who is worth fearing. Chapter seven is then titled, Grow in the Fear of the Lord. And these two chapters work together to show us that God is greater than man. And lately I've been reading some of John Frame, and one of the things he's really been pinning down is the distinction between the creator and the creature. And I think Ed Welch, you know, 18 years before the book I'm reading by John Frame came out, is really helping me grasp this, that we have to make a distinction between the creator and the creature. The creator is so much better and and learning the attributes of God, His holiness. I know R.C. Sproul has written well on that, and there's another book by Arthur Pink called The Attributes of God that I think if you're struggling to fear God, if you're struggling to put off the fear of man, and if you're just realizing that you have fear of man, those are books I would look to because they will help you develop chapter 6 and 7 of what Ed says here. So I want to camp briefly on chapter 6 in uh, what he calls figure 1, the fear of the Lord, a continuum. It's on page 97. I think of it as the spectrum of fear. And basically on the left side, it states um, that we live in, and then following that, going left to right, so this would be the spectrum or continuum. First, it's terror. And it progresses from terror to dread, to trembling, to astonishment, to awe, to reverence, to devotion, to trust, and finally, to worship. And what we see on this spectrum, if I could paint the picture for you, is on the left side, the closer you are to terror, you tend to hide from God, and you only know of God's holy justice, that you would be a sinner in in standing you know, in line to receive the wrath of God. But the further you move from terror to worship, you go from hiding from God to seeking Him, to drawing near to Him and submitting to Him, and not only when you move from terror to worship, is that true? But you go from only knowing God's holy justice to knowing both God's holy justice and His holy love. And I thought that really, when we say fear of God, there there is a fear and trembling. But when you are on the regenerate side of salvation, when God has, uh, when God has saved you, you know, that really is perfect love casting out fear. I think that would be a, a, a great application of that. That the love of God, who's put His holy justice and His and His wrath is poured out on Jesus, He's no longer going to punish you for what He's already punished Christ from. That would not be justice. And so we move from a a genuine sense of fear. You know, I'm talking like the kind of fear that you you are in awe and shock of your safety. That this God can consume me now to 
a dread, a trembling, and astonishment. And the astonishment, where we're just captivated by God the Creator. I think that astonishment and that awe, that's what those books I recommended, The Attributes of God, that's where we really see that. Is it, you know, maybe reading or listening to some R.C. Sproul and the Holiness of God really helps cultivate that astonishment on. Then we move to reverence, devotion, trust, and worship. And that would be what fear of God looks like. So to put off the fear of man, to quit asking people or being afraid of people or expecting them to give to us what only God can, it requires us to put on the fear of the Lord or put on the trust of the Lord. And that trust looks like reverence, devotion, trust, and worship that comes from an understanding that I am astonished and in awe of who you are and what you do and that you would do it for me and for your people and for the corporate body and for the universal church. And then you would call us up to be with you for all of eternity, that you protect us, that you will never reject us. You will never physically hurt us. And so that's probably my favorite part of the book is chapter six and chapter seven. I think it really spurs me to want to go read some theology proper. So I'll, I'll try to start to land the plane here with chapters eight through 13. But chapter eight is is quite an incredible concept. It says, biblically examine your felt needs. And then chapter 9 is knowing your real needs. And I just want to kind of put these together the way we did chapter 6 and 7. The concept of felt needs is very interesting because feelings are, and you remember back in chapter 5, how the world, I just mentioned it, emotions are the, are the truth. They kind of, you know, they function as great idols or functional gods. Felt need. We feel like we need it. And what Ed really encourages the reader to do is to examine really the validity of your felt needs. And one of the ways that we can do that, he says on page 149, quote, longings have much in common with lust. They start out good, a desire to be loved, but end up enslaving us. To elevate our desire for love, impact, and other pleasures to the point where they become needs or longings is to sinfully exalt desire so that it becomes a delirium of desire. It is to yell out, I want, I must have. My desires are the basic building blocks of my world. Consider the times when you have felt controlled by other people. Times they, quote, made you angry or depressed. Now look underneath that bondage. How would you complete the sentence? I need blank, or I long for blank. So I want to be really compassionate here, and I hope that this is where it might dig into the soil of the heart when we say, I want, I must have, I need. We demand that. Oftentimes we're demanding it from other people, so we're looking to other people to fulfill what we think we need. And that's what he's really challenging is our felt needs, one of the things that that I have observed in the counseling forum is oftentimes with couples. It is a good desire, as Ed Welch has said here, it is a good desire to want to be loved and respected by your spouse. But we are convinced that we need it, and that's evident that when we don't get it, we will start sinning to try to get it. And, you know, that's that's not to excuse a husband who does not serve and love his wife or a wife who is not respectful or submissive, that's not to excuse sin in any way, but it is to just challenge those who may be enduring that, that we don't ever 
excuse our sin because of the sin of someone else. And that, that really is the definition of hypocrisy. We acknowledge and see their sin, and we excuse our own sin because of it, because we have this feeling of what I need, and we demand it. It goes from a good desire. Yes, you should want to be loved and respected in your marriage. We would have some questions if you didn't, and that's a good desire. But when it becomes a controlling demand is when we tend to see that that's a felt need. I need blank. And usually when we don't get blank, we sin so that we can go get it. And that is a great example of how we can identify a felt need. I hope that uh, helps and makes sense. Again, I would just reference you to chapter 8. And I hope that this encourages you to read that. Very good on just getting at what we feel like we need isn't always what God has revealed in His Word that we need. So we look to chapter 9 that says, know your real needs. So chapter 8, we kind of identify those felt needs that are often good desires, but we live as if they are needs, and when we don't get them, we sin, and that's where that's where the problem comes in. Uh, but basically in chapter 9, just examining our real needs, he looks at it, who is God and who are we? Identifying God, he has a really nice picture here, figure two, titled The Person and the Church, reflecting God's glory. And there's an image of two hearts. Yep, just the nice, symmetrical, butterfly-esque heart. And in the middle of one says, God, the Holy One. And out of this heart is love and justice. And then there's a second heart, and it says men and women, called to be holy. So you have, you have God, who is the Holy One, the Creator. And then separate, you have men and women, who are called to be holy, the creature. So you've got the creator and the creature in two different hearts. Out of God, the creator is love and justice. And Ed writes, God's love and justice is revealed by God as judge, father, mother, son, friend, brother, servant, husband, master. Then men and women out of us come love and justice by imitating God, by being judge, father, mother, son, friend, brother, servant, husband. And when we display love and justice for other people, that, and here's where Ed has an arrow going from one heart to the next heart, that brings God glory by reflecting, trusting, obeying, honoring, imitating, representing, believing, and loving the Holy One, God. So that's how he really pictorially displays who we are and what is our mission. And here are just some ways, I think, that when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, one of the missions that we're forming confessional, we are talking about how do we apply the Word of God. And here is just a nice little list of some ways that we image God. It says, ultimately, page 158, going into 159, ultimately the awesome responsibility and glorious privilege of image-bearing is expressed in simple acts of obedience that have eternal implications. Imaging God is loving Him and loving your neighbor. In the same way that God's holy love and justice are manifest, are manifested in concrete acts, so should ours be. Wherever you find faith and trust, you will find people imaging God, in meeting with God's people for God's glory, in praying for each other and the, and the world for God's glory, in listening to a spouse rather than being defensive for God's glory, in going to work for God's glory in enjoying marital sexuality for God's glory, in parenting for God's glory. So instead of fear of man, you have faith and trust motivated by God's glory. 
So Ed relays this all under the heading of step five, which says examine where your desires have been too big. When we fear people, people are big. Our desires are even bigger and God is small. And there's the title of the book, When People Are Big and God is Small. So what we've seen here in in chapters eight and nine are that we have these big, big, big needs and we look to people to fill them. And because our need is gigantic, the people are big. But what that's done is eclipsed who God is. And and it just makes a lot of sense. When we have the wrong, when we when we identify the wrong needs, we will look to the wrong place to fill them. Of food. A lot of times we think we want the food to taste good, but really what our body needs is nutrition. So if we want our food to taste good, oftentimes we look to Snickers and Reese's and cookies and you know. Uh, we just had a nice round of pumpkin pies go through. We're looking for flavor because my felt need is I need I need it to taste good. But my real need is I need nutrition. Now, for those of you out there, I understand that flavor and nutritious food, they are not mutually exclusive. You can have something that is healthy and tastes good. It's just not that common. Okay, <laughs> so back on track. Uh, I wanted to finish out chapter 9 and get to the, really, the meat. It says, what do we really need? This is on page 162. He says, the answer depends on what you mean by need. If we're talking about psychological needs, then no, we do not need relationships with God or people to fill our longings for significance and love. Again, there's a hint of that self-esteem theme that he challenges throughout the book. He says, that would be like saying that I need God to meet my need to feel great and important. Self-serving needs are not meant to be satisfied. They are meant to be put to death. And that's really, I just want to share with you, that's where in my heart I've noticed, I think most people that know me, they would probably say, John's a nice person, you know, that's a nice outgoing guy. And I have really, this book has helped me examine my own heart that sometimes I'm being nice out of fear of man or I'm just people-pleasing to protect myself. And what I should be doing is being kind to those people as a reflection of the Holy One God and my love for Him and how He commands me to treat these people. And then leave the however they treat me back is in His hands and He will protect me and I will be safe in Him. But it's sometimes I have these niceties about me and it's in this way that's not even on the forefront of my mind, but it's I'm being kind to people because I want them to be kind back to me. And I that's something that I've been kind to people before and they've not been kind to me and vice versa. People have been kind to me and I haven't been kind back to them. So that's I'm, I'm striving for this thing that is not motivated by just glorify God and trust Him. And, and so that's really, I'm going to read this one more time and hope that that sinks in for you. We're talking about what do we really need? And he said, the answer depends on what you mean by need. If we're talking about psychological needs, then no, we do not need relationships with God or people to fill our longings for significance and love. That would be like saying that I need God to meet my need to feel great and important. Self-serving needs are not meant to be satisfied. That's why the love tank always seems empty, everyone. They are meant to be put to death. Self-serving needs are not meant to be satisfied. 
they are meant to be put to death. And again, I just want to be clear. I don't think the concept of love tank is is biblical. We aren't permitted to treat people according to how they treat us. We, we die to self. We look at the example of Christ, who while we were enemies, died for us. That's why the concept of love tank fails. And that's what chapter one is about. You're a leaking love tank because you are literally seeking to gratify desires that aren't ever meant to be satisfied, only put to death in the life of the believer. In terms of what we really need, I just want, of course we need God. And he says here, there's three very clear ways. He says, one, this is what we need, all right, biblically derived. We were created with biological needs. We need food and protection from harsh weather. We need God, and secondarily, other people to meet these needs. And that's true. I have a coat, and someone else somewhere made that, and praise God for them. I needed their help. Two, we are sinners who have spiritual needs. Apart from the redeeming and sustaining work of Christ, we are spiritually dead. We need Jesus. Amen. We need to be taught of Him and rebuked in love when we stray from Him. Furthermore, as we will be clarified in the, as we'll be clarified in the next chapter, we need to know His immense love. So we certainly there is a practical need for other people just to help function in a fallen world, but also there is a deep need for salvation and sanctification that only comes from God and knowing His love. And then number three, this is a really good point of this book. We were created as people with limited gifts and abilities. All the gifts of God are not contained in any one person. Therefore, we need other people in order to accomplish God's purposes and most accurately reflect His unlimited glory. And we see that in our website. We have multiple people because we are trying to accomplish something that one of us alone could not do. That's also the the plurality of elders within our churches. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12, the gifts of the church, the Spirit has given, according to His will, to whom He will, the degree and magnitude of the gifts, and they complement each other because one person alone cannot purpose what the church is called to do. And so in that way, we really do need other people. We need them to accomplish the task that God has called the church to accomplish. I think that that's just really, really wise, and and I'm thankful that Ed brings these three things out. That in a, you know, in a practical way, we need the farmer in the field uh, because we need the can of corn to eat that we would live. We need the clothing, the protection that someone else makes and manufactures. Of course, we need the Lord for our salvation and sanctification. And thirdly, we need the other members of the body because they're gifted and skilled in other ways that we aren't. And we are called to accomplish a mission that individually we just can't. We can hold those truths and still not fear other people. So I want to just, uh, I'm going to just have a wholesale kind of summary for the last three or four chapters, chapters 10 through 13, that are titled uh, Delight in the God Who Fills Us, Love Your Enemies and Your Neighbor, Love Your Brothers and Sisters, and then the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Those chapters are carried out under the the steps, right? We carry through the seven steps. Steps six and seven uh, within these last chapters are rejoice that God has covered your shame, protected you from danger, and accepted you. He has filled you with His love. And that really goes back to chapters two, three, and four, fearing that people will see me, reject me, and hurt me. Real rejoice that God has covered the shame. So, what is the why? Why are we afraid people would see us? Because we feel shame when they see us pick our nose or sing our song at the top of our lungs. Why? Why are we afraid that others would reject? We're afraid that others would reject us. We're afraid that others 
would hurt us, while we rejoice that God accepts us in Christ, and we rejoice that God protects us from danger. And yes, there will be tribulation, trial, and pain on this earth, but He does protect us according to His sovereign will, but also He protects us finally in heaven where the presence of sin is no more. So one, we acknowledge those fears of hey being seen and feeling shame, of being rejected and being hurt, and we praise and rejoice in the Lord that one, He covers our shame, two, He accepts us, and three, He protects us. And then lastly, step seven, this is really the end of the book, this is the put-on portion. We put off the fear of man, but we put on this need other people less, love other people more. And we do this out of obedience to Christ and as a response to His love toward you, and you pursue others in love. And so that's it. Need people less and love them more. And I have alluded to a couple times the um, the marriage, you know, and that's it. We There is certainly a call and an obligation to godly husbands and wives, to all husbands and wives, but certainly those who claim the name of Christ. But what we want to address and get across here is that when we look to that spouse to do what only God can do, the roots of bitterness follow. When we love them more, when we look at our duties from places like Genesis chapter 1 and 2, like Ephesians, the entire book, like 1 Peter chapter 3, when we see what the man and woman of God are, and when we really tune our hearts into what that person is supposed to do, what am I supposed to do as a godly husband? And I'm just going to love my wife like that. Rather than look to her to, to do things for me that only God can, that's how we put off the fear of man. Remember, it's that creator-creature distinction. So I've covered this kind of chapter to chapter. What I really want to do is, is just give you a brief summary because it's been long. We've been about an hour, and I really appreciate it and your patience and time. But I want to go back to where we began, suicide. How does fear of man play into suicide? If we, if we allow others to drive us to despair, and I am leveling with the person who has been grossly sinned against, abuse, uh, if talk about physical hurt, physical hurt, spiritual hurt. You identify with the psalmist in Psalm 32 as a crushed spirit who tastes the tears upon their bed, perpetual pain and sorrow and being sinned against. And fearing man, hoping that our circumstances would get better because people would change. Oftentimes when people don't change, that drives us to despair. And there may be something that a person says, well, I've been shamed, I've been rejected, and I've been hurt by many, many people, so I must be the problem. And that shame and that rejection and that fear drives people to thoughts of, it would be better if I were dead. And that leads to suicide. And so my call to you, my plea of my heart, whether you read this book or not, is realize that the, the opposite of fear of man is trust in God. And for the person who has been shamed and rejected and hurt I pray that you would seek the Lord who through the gift of His Son, despite the shame of our sin, despite the legitimacy of our offense that garners His wrath, He has said, anyone who comes to me, anyone who confesses my Son, anyone who believes that He is the Lord and I've raised Him from the dead, I will be their Father. I will forgive their sin. I will cover your shame. I will not reject you. I will accept you. And I will protect you. And, and my prayer is that gives you 
hope for tomorrow. And despite the shame and despite the rejection, despite the hurt from other people, you have an opportunity to bring glory to God in your life. And you cannot do that from the grave. Bring glory to God, showing that He is a healer. He is a protector. He is a defender. He accepts you in Christ. And then go share that with others. Share of that healing. Others that are in despair, others that are in darkness, share that with them. And so the practical steps would be seek your pastor, seek biblical counseling. I always will direct you to ACBC, uh, biblicalcounseling.com, where you can find a counselor in your area. If you want, on our website, there's an article titled Suicide, Made in the Image of God. And at the bottom of that, there are several resources. There's a couple videos of counseling seminars that address this. And uh, for those of you that maybe fear of man uh, hasn't driven you to despair and you're not suicidal, I, I, I pray that you would be aware and you would come to the Lord and see where you're asking man to do what only God can. And where maybe you, you where are you selfishly people-pleasing? Maybe grab a copy of this book and, and spend a month or so and just read it slowly, working through these seven steps. The experience I've had with reading this and trying to be intentional is that I have a, a sense of awareness now of where I am actively fearing people. And there's scriptures like Proverbs chapter 29, verse 20, 29, verse 25, that tells me there's a better way. Trust in the Lord rather than put so much stock in this person's opinion of you. And then Galatians chapter 1, uh, which I'm going to read to you right now. And Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, which says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So our goal is to please Christ. And when we don't, that should bring about fear, and we should repent and obey Him, that we would please Him. But our goal is not to please man. Our goal and our command and our commission is to love man. I hope this has been helpful to you in some way. Share it with someone if it has, or if you know someone who is struggling with fear of man or even suicidal Again, use this resource, When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch, to help folks get to the bottom of that and put off fear of man by putting on trust in the Lord and love of others. Thank you so much for your attentiveness and the opportunity to hopefully minister to your heart for the glory of the Lord. I pray, dear God, that you would be glorified through this effort and help my brothers and sisters who are struggling. And lastly, if you haven't been to our website, please go to reformconfess.com where you will find reformed and confessional writings in the forms of academic articles, blogs, exegetical studies, devotions, and we have quite a bit of blogcasts piling up for those of you who would prefer to listen rather than read, maybe on the go, in the car, on the way to work. And if you desire, you can visit our shop or become a Patreon. And again, our commitment to you is if you support us financially, we will steward your money to the glory of God and in an effort to promote Reformed confessionalism, proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture, and extol the supremacy of Christ over all things. God bless you.